Amen. You may be seated here tonight. You can give it up. That was powerful worship. How do you know what was happening here tonight was powerful and meaningful and deeply meaningful? So we wanted to make space and time for that. Fred already started preaching my sermon anyways. I'm going to be preaching on forgiveness tonight. We are in a sermon series called Conversations. And if you have your Bible here tonight, you can turn to Matthew 18. We're going to be looking at a conversation between Peter and Jesus. But again, we're in this series called Conversations, looking at conversations between humans and God, whether it is God revealing himself as he did to Cain, as we looked at the first sermon in this series, or last week, Jesus speaking to the woman on the, at the well, and all the different encounters Jesus has in the Gospels. We're looking at these conversations because, again, as we talked about when we opened the series, God spoke us into existence, and we created in his image, we're created to speak and have conversations, not just with each other, but with God, to have conversations and to have meaningful connection. And I can remember a conversation I had with a friend uh, when I was a, a brand new believer. Shout out to Pastor Tom Wells in the building. I got saved at his church when I was a senior uh, at William & Mary, uh, 2005. I don't even remember. David, what was the conference called? Was it Resonate? Resonate Conference, 2005, October 10th. Gave my life to Christ there. And uh, it was probably like a month after that. Like, it's funny when, when you have the hope of Christ and you people see that, they start coming to you. And people start coming to me with questions. And I'm like, you realize I'm an immature 21-year-old that's like two books into the Bible. And you're treating me like I'm a hybrid of like King Solomon and Dr. Phil. But <laughs> some, I had two friends and they were going through a conflict. And one of them came to me for a conversation. And she was struggling with how to forgive this person. She said, God forgives and forgets, right? So if I'm going to forgive like God, I... I I had to forgive and forget, and I don't know that I could ever forget what this person did, so I don't know if, if I can ever forgive them. And I remember that conversation all these years later, because it was one of those conversations, you know, the ones you play back in your head for like three hours later, just what could I have said, what should I have said, and I remember it because they never walked as friends again. They never truly reconciled, they never walked in forgiveness because of some ideas about forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is, is crucial. Fred already started talking about this, not just with our vertical relationship with God, but in our relationships with people in this life. We're going to get hurt in life by people, whether they mean it or not, and we're going to have to learn to walk in forgiveness. And so to have misconceptions about forgiveness can both cripple those relationships with other people and with God, and it can cripple our ability to forgive. But luckily for us, there's a conversation in Matthew that we can dig into tonight in Matthew 18 that sheds light on forgiveness, both what it is and what it isn't. And again, we're going to start in verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 35. It says, Then Peter came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and, and I'll pay it, he pleaded. 
But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And they live happily ever after. <laughs> That's heavy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray you would use this conversation and this word to, to continue the conversation you've already started tonight about forgiveness, to do a work in our hearts you've already started through worship. Just continue it in a way that's going to continue with us out those doors and into that world you've called us to minister to. In Jesus' name, amen. But before we really get, don't worry, we, we had space for that. I'm not going to keep you long, right? <laughs> I can't say cool things like Fred, like I'm going to add it to my blog later if I don't get to it. But uh, I'll get to it tonight. But before we really get rolling, can I just give Peter a shout out? Because I think sometimes we think of Peter as the knucklehead who just says dumb stuff, always has his foot in his mouth, right? Just, just speaks off the cuff. And you're always like, what are you even thinking, Peter? But you know, the other side of the coin with his propensity to open his mouth, Peter asks more questions than all the other disciples combined. And, and, and when I get to heaven, I want to thank Peter personally for asking these questions because some of the stuff Jesus teaches is dense. Like, and you're like, what is he even talking about? And Peter had the courage to be like, Jesus, what are you even talking about? <laughs> and so I think sometimes we, we, we think he was uh, an uneducated fisherman with childlike questions, but, you know, sometimes wisdom is on the other side of the right questions. And he wasn't content to not know or not understand. He wanted to understand more deeply. And, and again, I'd love to thank him one day. And I share that because may we not just be content to reflect on other people's conversations, whether it's in scripture, whether it's shared from a pulpit, whether it's shared on TV or wherever, may we have conversations with God. Maybe that looks like the worship set we just had. Maybe that looks like a, a life of prayer where you speak to God and then a life in his word where he speaks to us. I don't know what it may look like for you, but may we have the same courage that Peter did to step into his presence with our doubts, <laughs> our questions, our anger, our discouragement, our whatever it may be. I pray we would walk into his presence with that just as quickly as Peter did. But here we see Peter came to him, and he asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, why did Peter ask this question? We don't know for sure. Maybe he'd been recently hurt. Maybe somebody had taken advantage of him in the past. I mean, you just think of the culture they were in with the Roman oppression over the Jews, the, the racism, the persecution, and all of that could have been a weight on him where he was wrestling with forgiveness. But he sparks a, a conversation similar to the one I had in college with that person. How do I forgive well? How do I forgive like God wants me to forgive? And this is a big deal because, again, in life, you're going to be hurt from different angles by different people. There will be plenty for us to forgive in this life. And Peter, no doubt feeling the weight of it, figures maybe I should take this to Jesus and find out why. And maybe you would say, why is he at seven? Like, why seven? Why seven times? Well, religious leaders held to this belief in that time and in that culture and in their teaching that to forgive somebody three times was enough. And you think, what is that based on? Like baseball, three strikes and you're out. Like baseball wasn't around yet. So what is this based on, this idea that, you, you can forgive somebody three times, and then after that, like, retribution is fair game, and you don't have to worry about forgiving at that point. Well, it's actually 
pulled from the prophet Amos in Amos 1.3. He prophesied God's judgment of the nations. And in that verse, he says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And because of this verse and a similar verse in Job and different teachings they held to, they laid hold of this and meant that you could forgive up to this point, then you never forgive anymore. So when you think about that, Peter, this isn't a foot in, in the mouth moment. Peter was thoughtful with this. He's like, I'm going to multiply that by two, and I'm even going to add one to that. And seven is like this number of completion in, in that culture. So this is, this is well thought out by Peter. And forget their culture. Think about our culture. Forgiving somebody seven times, right? In our culture, it's fool me once, shame on me. No, 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 I'm <laughs> like President Bush, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fumble it. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three, four, five, six, set. Come on, seven times. That's crazy. It doesn't even seem uh, responsible because at some point you got to recognize this person isn't even sorry. They're not repentant, and they keep doing it over and over again. So these religious leaders aren't crazy to say, "Oh, hey, that fourth time you're good." They, they realize that at some point you got to realize, is this person even sorry? And yet, and still, Jesus replies to Peter, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. And in the Greek, it's unclear, you know, some translations say 77. Some translations say 70 times seven. And there's a little debate about, like, well, what is the number? And I don't really care because Jesus' point that we'll see tonight is the number doesn't matter. Right, forgiveness, it, it, we're called to forgive without keeping count. Forgiveness it, it isn't quantitative, it's qualitative. It's not about math. It's, it's a mindset. Like forgiveness is not about keeping a list, but it's a, it's a lifestyle. That lifestyle is not easy to just pick up and take up and walk out. So praise Jesus that he, he continues this conversation with the, the parable of the unforgiving debtor, which we see in verses 23 through 35. And the context here, as it is with most parables, is that it's a parable about the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. So that means in this parable, God is the king, the king is God. And more context, my translation here says he owed millions. And there's a footnote and it says 10,000 talents. Maybe your Bible says 10,000 talents. Now a talent was worth 6,000 denarii. And stick with me. That was the value of one workday. So this, a talent is 6,000 workdays. This man owed 10,000 talents so we're talking the equivalent of six million workdays. I did some math. You take the average life expectancy. That's well over 200 lifetimes of work that he owed this man. So it's been estimated as hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Again, I don't believe the number matters because the bottom line is it was an insurmountable death. Debt, excuse me. Because God is this king and this king is God. And this king does what God did for us. He forgives a debt we could never pay. The wages of sin is death, and the debt is of sin is one we could never pay. That's why it says in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You've probably heard it said, I think it was Samuel Rutherford who said it first, that we owed a debt we couldn't pay. So Christ paid a debt he didn't owe. That's the gospel truth. But for more parable context, context for this parable, in this day there wasn't bankruptcy. You couldn't declare bankruptcy as we know it. You could be thrown into a debtor's prison along with your family. There's no ACLU in those days. And in light of this threat, this man responds, 
please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. We know this is foolishly impossible. But rather than scoff at him, the king forgives him. We fast forward and this forgiven man is confronted by the second man's debt owed to him. Context, four months of pay. Four months versus about 200 lifetimes. And he begs, be patient with me and I'll pay it. Sounds familiar. But this man who was forgiven infinitely more by the king, unlike the king, isn't having it. And here's what should make us pause when we read this and sober up real quick. The king catches wind of this and reinstates the debt of the man he had forgiven, which means he hands him over to these jailers to pay off his debt. Again, six million workdays, 200 lifetimes. We're talking eternity. And this reads like something out of The Godfather. <laughs> this reads like something out of The Sopranos or some kind of mob movie, this, this punishment. And, and we would say, well, Jesus, you know, he doesn't mean like that actually would happen to us. And we think, well, he, we kind of rephrase his words, soften it. But you ever prayed to our Father? You ever mean it? We ask for this. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus makes it crystal clear in verse 35. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brother and sister from your heart. And I'm not here to recklessly rattle cages or shake assurance, but we better recognize, for God, forgiveness is not an option. It's a requirement. It's not extra credit. It's, it's foundational in the life of a believer. And you might say, well, they don't even deserve it. Neither did I. If it was deserved, it wouldn't be grace. God's forgiveness and grace, it wasn't only undeserved, it was proactive. Jesus died for us. He paid our debts while we were still sinners. And Jesus is saying in, in this parable that a transformed, redeemed heart will extend the same mercy and forgiveness that it's been extended. Forgiveness isn't extra credit. It's foundational. It's key. So we got to get it right. And I share this because we so often uh, can cling to it in ways that can be harmful. And I think one way we do this is we've long made forgiving and forgetting two steps made in unison. Right, we've long tied forgiveness to forgetting and this can cripple our ability to forgive and leave us tied up and bound just like the man at the end of the parable. Because the man's problem in the parable wasn't some inability to forget. His problem was his forgetfulness. And when he seemingly forgot the infinite amount he was forgiven and refused to forgive and abuse the man who owed pennies in comparison, people are upset and they tell the king. And the king doesn't say, what man? What debt? Right, like he'd forgotten it. No, he... He knows all too well what he had forgiven, and he reapplied it. And some of us may think, well, he wasn't very forgiving in the first place then. Why? Because he didn't forgive and forget. But, you know, this isn't a command in Scripture. It is an idea that we see is pulled from Scripture. And, and the verse we could look at is Hebrews 8.12. Hebrews 8.12 is quoting Jeremiah 31.34. Anytime Scripture quotes Scripture, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, we should pay attention it's as if God is highlighting something he already said. He's circling it. He's underlining it for us in our Bibles. And Hebrews 8, 12 is this beautiful verse. He says, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. That's powerful, and that's beautiful. But you know, the idea that can flow from this is, is if we were to confess the same sin twice, God would look at us with this confused look, this blank stare like, what are you even talking about? But here's the problem. The God we worship is omniscient. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His omniscience is an, an eternal quality that my repentance doesn't strip him of. He forgets nothing. He remembers everything because he's all-knowing. I mean, let's use our imaginations and let this play out for a minute. Like, 
David in the Old Testament, his sins with Bathsheba that he repents of, where he, he murders, he lies, he commits adultery, he breaks most of the Ten Commandments in this, these chapters. Paul, when he was Saul, murdering the church, right, he, he too repents of that. And we have this in Scripture. Does that mean that God has forgotten those things and we're aware of things in, in the Bible that he doesn't even know about? That would be wild. That would get weird quick. So we got to look at the word that's translated in Scripture as remember. Because I believe when we walk out of here tonight, having witnessed this beautiful picture of forgiveness with the foot washing, having dug into this passage about forgiveness in Matthew 18, that we can untether it from forget and begin to cling to this word, remember. Remember. What am I talking about? Well, we'll get there. But God, not remembering, in plain English, would seem, well, that means he forgets, right? In English, forget is an antonym of of remember, they're opposites. So that's easy peasy, done deal, let's go eat, right? I can pray. But if you read your Bible and the rest of its content within this framework and perspective, you'll come across some wild passages. Like you just start reading from the beginning of your Bible in Genesis. In Genesis 7, Noah is in the ark with his family, right? He is getting rocked in the ocean full of, uh, uh, in an ark full of animals and, and, and all those smells. Right, getting tossed to and fro on the ocean, 40 days, 40 nights. And it says at the beginning of Genesis 8, God remembers Noah. Like was God off binging Netflix and a season ended. He's like, oh, you know what? <laughs> I forgot about Noah. And he went to go help him. Or you keep reading, you get to Exodus. It says at the beginning of Exodus, you know, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, not for 40 days, not for 40 nights, but for generations, hundreds of years. And it says at the beginning of Exodus that God remembers his covenant with the Israelites. Did he forget it, right? Did he forget this uh, covenant? You know, reading this should give us pause. You can see how this would mess up your theology pretty quick. Like God could forget about you. God could randomly clock out being sovereign over your life. Again, this word translated, remember, in the Hebrew and the Greek, what it speaks to is a person's responding to something, their reaction. One Jewish scholar broke it down this way. In the Bible, remembering, particularly on the part of God, is not the retention or recollection of a mental image, but a focusing upon the object of memory that results in action. Elsewhere, it's been said that biblical remembering is less about head activity, like remembering a fact or something, and more about hand activity. It's a focused response. It's why in Scripture, like in Genesis and Exodus, when God remembers, we see a response. It's not saying that God forgot about Noah's existence or forgot about his covenant with the Israelites any more than he totally forgets about the things we've done in the past. What Hebrews is speaking to when it says God will no longer remember their sins isn't divine amnesia, but it means your sins will no longer be God's focus and he no longer responds accordingly. What he focuses on is the cross of Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifice and he responds in grace and mercy. It's like he puts his sin behind his back where they're no longer his focus. Or as Psalm 103 puts so beautifully, as far as the east is from the west, far from his focus, right? And he doesn't no longer respond to them accordingly. He focuses again, instead upon Jesus' all-sufficient sacrifice, and his response is grace and mercy. And praise God for that. But see, this idea of forgive and forget, it's not harmless. It can do damage because our application of forgive and forget can be, well, I'll act as if the sin never occurred, and I'm going to live as if I don't remember it. It's like we're inspired by forgiving, forget into self-induced amnesia. But this most often doesn't result in spiritual or emotional maturity. Burying hurt 
And burying our head in the sand more often results in emotionally handicapped people who aren't walking in spiritual and emotional health. Why? Because I believe forgive and forget causes us to misplace and fumble two very important things, trust and consequences. First, forgive and forget causes us to play fast and loose with our trust. Because if we truly forgive and forget, then we have to treat them like nothing happened. Forgive and forget becomes a free pass back into the circle of trust with a full and immediate restoration of the relationship and all the privileges that come with it. Because of this, we, we often struggle to forgive like my friend did because we think if I forgive this person, I open myself up to being hurt again. We get, again, this idea that forgiveness means an immediate extension of relationship again. Listen, the same way trust is earned over time, forgiveness can be walked out over time. It's as much a journey as it is a momentary decision. Like many decisions in life, sometimes the feelings take time to catch up. Give yourself time. And when somebody forgives you, we so often forget to give that person time. If someone has forgiven us, we impulsively think, well, they should forget, they should move on, and they should get over it. And if they haven't, then they're being unforgiven, and all of a sudden that's their problem. But again, forgiveness is a decision that so often can take time for the emotions to catch up. Trust and its restoration takes time. You know, Paul is writing his disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.14 when he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. But you too should beware of him. See, Paul had forgiven, but he hadn't forgotten. He was telling Timothy, matter of fact, don't rush to give him your trust. Yet his forgiveness was evident in the fact that he'd moved on, right? He trusted God to take care of it, so he didn't need to. He left justice in God's hands and didn't let Alexander live rent-free in his mind. Because, see, when you let those people who have hurt you live rent-free up here, it's you that loses your freedom. Like the man at the end of the parable, you're imprisoned by your own unforgiveness. And Paul understood this, that letting go of grudges helps us lay hold of grace and freedom again. And yet it didn't mean that he, he flippantly gave Alexander back his full trust. That takes trust in God. Which leads me to my second point quickly that we fumble when we forgive and forget, and that's consequences. Some of us may raise our eyebrows that Paul would say this about Alexander if he truly forgiven him. Because our picture of forgiveness is like the, the frozen version. Just let it go, right? Let it go with all the consequences. But forgiveness is not a cancellation of consequences. In fact, I would argue that a quality apology Somebody apologizing to you should already include those, right? A, a quality apology, I've heard it said, should have uh, remorse. I feel bad about what I did. Responsibility, this is what I did. This is what I'm apologizing for that hurt you. And then a remedy, consequences, like this is what I want to do better. This is how I want to make this right. That's what a quality apology looks like. And in light of that, forgiveness might mean, yeah, I accept your apology, right? You remove the weight of remorse. I forgive the transgression. You recognize their responsibility, but it doesn't remove the remedy. It doesn't cancel the consequences. And this doesn't just affect our relationships horizontally as relate to, to friends and, and engaged person to person. It can affect our relationship with God. Because we might think after we've repented and, and accepted forgiveness from God, we, we might think, I repented, but I'm still suffering the consequences. What's going on, God? Shouldn't you remove all traces of my sin? Yes, yeah, spiritually, God cleans our slate. Spiritually, he no longer focuses on our sin. But in this life, our actions still have consequences. They can still cause brokenness that we wrestle with. They can still bear consequences. You may still be walking in the consequences of that lie, that drunk driving, that affair. But 
guess what? If, if God has forgiven you, it doesn't define you. Grace means you get another chance. What will you do with it? Like King David, again, to go back to, to that passage in Scripture where he commits, basically breaks all the Ten Commandments in, in one passage, in one massive ordeal with Bathsheba, and he repents. But despite his repentance, there's still consequences. The death of the child they conceived through adultery as well as ongoing painful consequences that will play out in their family. But he got a second chance, and he laid hold of it. And he doesn't go down as David the adulterer. He doesn't go down as David the murderer. He doesn't go down as David the liar. He goes down as a man after God's own heart who fulfilled his purposes for his generation. That's forgiveness, and that's grace. Not always a removal of consequences, but a second chance. And I share those two points about trust and consequence because in terms of forgiveness, as it is sometimes with many things, it's as important to recognize what something isn't as much as it is to recognize what it is. Forgiveness is not some forced forgetting and burying our head in the sand. It's not an immediate restoration of trust. It's not always the removal of consequences. But to hammer home the main point tonight, forgetting may not always be the fruit of forgiveness, but remembering is fuel for forgiveness. The lifestyle of forgiveness that's not always easy, as we're called as Christ followers to follow Christ in his footsteps, it's fueled by remembering. See, the wildest part of the parable to me that we opened with isn't the shocking ending. It's the forgetfulness of the first servant that is so impossible, it's borderline comedic, right? It's like he doesn't remember, he'd been just, he'd just been forgiven of, of hundreds of lifetimes of debt when he's got this guy in front of him who owed him infinitely smaller, an infinitely smaller amount. And yet I walk in his shoes when I walk in unforgiveness and cling to grudges and choke the flow of forgiveness that's meant to flow from the cross into my life and out into the world. But when I remember the debt I couldn't pay, when I remember the cross, when I remember what Jesus did for me, and I focus less on what people did to me and focus more on what Jesus did for me, forgiveness seems possible where it once seemed impossible. Forgiveness flows from this remembering, remembering the cross that fuels forgiveness and the price that was paid. You rip me, off, so rip me off of four months of pay, I'm gonna be angry. But when I look in the mirror and I remember 200 lifetimes that I owed, I'll probably cool off a little bit, right? See, to forgive, I need to remember, not forget. I don't need to remember what, so much what people have done to me, but what Jesus did for me. And if we're honest though, this is hard. This is not easy. This is not just a, a walk in the park. Sometimes it's hard to forgive because what was done to us deeply impacted us caused trauma. It shaped who we are. Maybe it was something done to us, something taken from us. Maybe it was even by a person we can forgive. Maybe it was just the circumstances of life. The enemy would love for you to begin to identify with that. But that becomes a part of your identity, the things that have been done to you, the things that have been taken from you. But we aren't defined by what's been done to us in life. We are defined by what Jesus did for us. God does not define you or see you by what's been done to you, or even what you did and repented of. He sees you because of what Jesus did for you. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're unconditionally loved. We can't choose what happens to us in this life, but we don't have to be defined by it, whether it's been taken from us or done to us. That's why if there's a word to take home with us, it's remember. Remember. It's how Jesus' grace truly takes root in our life, and our identity takes root as forgiven and loved and graced. And if there's a verse to take home with us, one that's illustrated by Jesus' parable, it's Colossians 3.13. Paul says, make allowance for each other's faults 
and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Forgive anyone who offends me? How? Not by forgive and forget. He says to forgive by remembering. Remember the debt that was paid for you. And we're provided the symbol of forgiveness that should fuel our forgiveness. And it's not a scoreboard, not something to keep count on. It's the cross. Whatever was on your scoreboard, whatever's on their scoreboard, it was paid in full at the cross. And it was after the cross and Jesus' resurrection that Peter would get an even bigger picture of forgiveness. See, Peter, he received an answer, and he, he even got a parable in Matthew 18. But later he would receive an application as he received forgiveness from Christ in John 21. See, Peter had denied Christ three times. Jesus had told his disciples, look, all you are going to fall away. But Peter was like, nah, not me. I got you, right? I'm here to the end. And Jesus said, no, you're going to deny me three times, and then the rooster's going to crow. And sure enough, after Jesus' arrest, right, Peter follows him. He's in the crowd, and people start asking him, hey, aren't you a disciple? Aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? And Jesus has been arrested, and he's being beaten. And Peter, no doubt fearful of being arrested and beaten, denies that three times. And then the rooster crows. You know, I don't know if you've ever been where a rooster crows. Maybe you've been to La Guasa, right, in the Dominican Republic. Maybe you just grew up in an agricultural area. You quickly learn that you were sold a lie as a kid that roosters only crow when the sun is rising. No, roosters do not have an internal clock. They start crowing at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. They don't have a snooze. They just keep going, right? And that's just what happens. The rooster crows. So I don't know, like Peter... In this agricultural society, every time he woke up in the night or in the morning to a rooster's crow, did he remember his three denials, the weight of guilt? Do you remember shame? Every time a rooster crowed. And yet when Jesus forgives him and restores him and reaffirms his love for him in John 21, I don't think it's a coincidence that he asks him three times if he loves him. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's in the morning over breakfast. Because it would have been roosters crowing. See, Jesus wanted Peter to remember. Because a life of felt forgiveness and giving forgiveness is fueled by remembering. Not your guilt. Not remembering their guilt. But remembering God's grace. Not, not a scoreboard with his sins or my sins or the sins of others, but a cross where the slate was wiped clean. Jesus wanted Peter to remember. The Bible commands us to remember over 200 times. And often before Christ in Scripture, it's pointing back to Exodus, right, where the Israelites were free from Egypt. We're told to remember again and again in Scripture how God delivered them from slavery into freedom. This beautiful picture of what Jesus did at the cross, purchasing our freedom. And look, we can't cancel the work that Jesus did on the cross, but we can live without the freedom and the peace and the blessing that God has promised us in this life when we cling to grudges and we live in unforgiveness. See, Peter went on from his conversations and this, this, this encounter in John 21 to, to speak about forgiveness in his letter to the church, in his conversation with the church. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. See, our world is dog eat dog, tit for tat, insult for insult. But Peter says if you're following Christ and not of the world, you'll repay with a blessing. 
That blessing is forgiveness. It's grace. The grace that flows from the cross, we're called to be a conduit of that grace, not a container. Right? Our, our hope is in the cross. Our hope is in the grace that flows from the cross, and it's meant to flow from our lives into the world. We're not going to go into to worship tonight, but somebody's going to hop on the keys, and we're going to have a moment of prayer. But I come in here every week, whether I'm preaching or not, and I pray right here. And I listen to the same two songs. I'm a creature of habit. I joke with people. I'm a pastor. I don't really listen to worship albums even. There's just like those songs that I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to that over and over again. There's two songs I listen to when I pray in here every Saturday. And one of them, the bridge says, let me not mess it up. Like a rushing river, let mercy flow through my heart to the world. Like a rushing river, let mercy flow through my heart and to the world. How often do we live lives where it's like, like a rushing liver, rushing liver. <laughs> That's a health condition there. <laughs> like a rushing river, let mercy flow to my heart. And then that's it. Like a rushing river, let mercy and grace flow to my heart. And that's the end. God may a rushing, like a rushing river, let mercy flow through our hearts and to our world. May grace flow through our hearts and to our world. May forgiveness flow through our hearts and to our world. May hope flow through our hearts and to our world. May faith flow through our hearts to our world. May love flow. May peace flow. God, I don't know what we came in here needing tonight, but I know you want to fill us up with that tonight so that we can step out of here and it can impact the world. For your glory, to build your church so that people can know the name of Jesus Christ, that their debt was paid, that God extends grace and extends mercy. And I pray that tonight we would hear those words that Jesus said, that it was, we have freely received and we're called to freely give. And even now, as I'm closing, I, I don't know if it's here, I don't know if it's online. There's somebody who just needs to hear those words, you freely receive. You don't earn it. You don't pay it off. You don't get your life right before you receive it. No, it, it, it's freely given. The story of the prodigal son is, is, is the son takes his inheritance and he goes and wastes it on sin. And then he, he thinks, man, I, I want to go back to my dad. I want to go back to my home. I'm suffering. And he goes home and he's like, dad, I will be your servant. I will pay this off by serving. And the father doesn't make him do anything. He's just ready with open arms. And I don't know if that's you tonight. You've been thinking, man, I got to earn my way back. I've got to work my way back. I've got to get my life right. No, God is waiting with open arms with unconditional love. And we're going to step into a moment of prayer. You can receive prayer online by pressing the prayer button. But if that's you tonight, come on, I want to pray with you. I'll be right here. <laughs> I want to pray with you, resource you, celebrate you. But then also, Fred, when he was uh, introducing communion, was talking about carrying just pain that was inflicted by leaders. And maybe you didn't come up because you don't have pain that was inflicted by leaders. But you got pain that's been inflicted by other people. And you know that you got to lay it down. You got to let go of it. And maybe that's you tonight, and we'll be here to pray. But God, I pray, God, that we would be able to let go of those grudges and lay hold of grace. God, let go of ill will and lay hold of our identity again. May every person that leaves this place have their identity rooted in not what's been done to them, not what's been taken from them, not what they've done, not what they've taken, but in what you did for them. 
Jesus Christ so that we could be adopted into the family of faith, your son, your daughter, loved by you, our father. May we walk out this place in full confidence and assurance of that. And if we've never prayed that prayer, we've never stepped into that relationship, may we all do it tonight. May it be like Philippians 2 where every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father in this place. Jesus, we praise you and we worship you because you took our debt, that insurmountable debt that we could have never paid, that we would have spent eternity trying to pay off, and you paid it at the cross. You took our list of sins. You nailed it to the cross. You don't keep a scorecard. You don't keep a scoreboard. God, there is simply a cross where forgiveness, grace, and mercy flows. And God, if we've been carrying guilt and shame, I pray we'll be able to lay it down again tonight and pick up your grace and pick up your mercy and pick up our identity in you and that you would fill us with whatever it is you want to flow out of this sanctuary and into the world as we minister and build your church in this region. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. But thanks again for joining us. Come on, we truly want to build the church Jesus envisioned and love the world he died to save. We want to see revival in our city, in our region, but it's going to start here. So if you need prayer for anything, you need to lay down anything, whether it's a habit, an addiction, a hurt, we want to pray for you. Otherwise, Let's keep a, 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 an atmosphere of prayer and worship in here. If you want to talk, you can go outside. You can go down the hall. You can pick up your kids. Don't forget that. Otherwise, let's receive prayer. We'll see you next week.